John chapter 8. Now it's been a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John. And so a, a quick review of where we've been. Since the time of Jesus' healing of the lame man in chapter 5, we find here in the Gospel of John a, a growing attack on the person and work of Jesus Christ. From the time that Jesus fed the 5,000 men and their families in chapter 6, and began to proclaim himself as the bread of life, as the bread that has come from heaven, not the manna that the children of Israel ate in, in the wilderness, because they ate that bread that God provided, but they would die. But a bread that they would eat and have eternal life. But the detractors and critics would grow. And every opportunity from chapter 5 now has been to find something in Christ that they could use against him. <clears throat> they claimed that he had healed on the Sabbath, therefore he was a blasphemer and should be punished for that. They wanted to take his life for breaking their interpretation of the law when everyone knew and knows today that he is the giver of the law and the fulfiller of the law. And so came the time when he would once again enter into the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And again, the opposition toward him and toward what he said of himself would continue to grow. And then at the end of the feast, he used the opportunity of the pouring out of water, which was a part of the festival uh, and, and, and the way that they celebrated the festival there in Jerusalem. On the last day of the feast, water was brought up from the Pool of Siloam and was poured out by the altar of sacrifice. And Jesus cried out with a, with, with a loud voice. And he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then the questions began to be asked, who is this man? Who is this person? Some would say he was the Messiah. Others would say he was the prophet. And others would not believe any of that. But when it was all said and done, Eventually, everybody just went home. As we see in verse 53 of chapter 7, which is where we begin. Because verse 53 of chapter 7 really should begin chapter 8. It says, And every man went unto his own house. Jesus, verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Everyone who was saying anything about Jesus that day went to their own homes. But Jesus had no home here on this earth. But he went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. 
And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, <clears throat> being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Shall we pray? Our Father, our God, grant us, Lord, your wisdom through your Holy Spirit this morning that we may truly understand, Lord, what the impact of this passage will be, Lord, to our own hearts as we consider you as the one who has shown us the greatest of compassion. For indeed, we are sinners, but thankfully, saved by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. There have been for a number of years certain biblical scholars and critics of the Bible who have questioned whether this portion of John chapter 8 even belongs in this gospel, much less that it was written by someone other than the apostle himself. They have said it is questionable because these 11 verses are not found in some of the older manuscripts from which a lot of the more modern translations are based. Some manuscripts and translations, it is believed, have omitted them altogether because some of the early Christians felt that a story like this suggested a lenient attitude toward immoral behavior and would be misunderstood by people emerging out of heathen or pagan practices. But to read the rest of the gospel would show how false that assumption would be. Hence, this account fits not only where it does, between Jesus proclaiming himself as the bread and water of life and his proclamation in verse 12 as the light of the world. After all, the sin of this woman is no worse than the sin of every one of us. And I think we have to begin there. The sin of this woman is no worse than the sin of every one of us. We know that because of the word of God. We know that because of Isaiah 53 verse 6 that says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here in the, in the first clause of this statement in Isaiah 53, the sin of the human race is pointed out. The entire human race has gone astray, away from God. The second phrase indicates the individual iniquities of each. It says, we have turned every one to his own way. So we see the general idea, the general aspect of sin, just, uh, you know, all of us being under that sin, that original sin that was found in the, in the garden that, that came about because of the sin of, of, of the serpent that, uh, that uh, deceived the woman and the man. But then, the next phrase points to the individual aspect of our sins. 
We're not only collectively sinners, we are individually sinners. And the reason I say that is because some have kept from the more fleshly indulgences. There would be some that said, I've never gone in that direction. I've never done those things. Yet, they can be as guilty as, of, of as vile of sins of the mind and of the heart. In fact, when you think about the statement that we've oftentimes read in, in, in the selection of uh, the, the king to follow after Saul, and Samuel, the uh, the priest would go to the house of Jesse as, you know, in, in obedience to the Lord to find in that household uh, the next king of Israel. And he's paraded, you know, they're, they're, the sons of Jesse are paraded before him. He said, do you have any other sons? Uh, before he asked, actually asked that, he, there was this thought that here was one guy that he saw that was like, all right, this might be him. He's big, he's tall, he's strong, he looks like he's pretty smart. And it says, but the Lord said unto Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The fact of the matter is, what is seen on the outside is not necessarily what is really fully describing the person that a person is on the inside. And so even though there would be some that would not have fallen into certain fleshly indulgences, still there is a pride inside of every person. And the scriptures tell us, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, that pride is that abominable thing that God hates. The pride of, of, of the serpent, you know, that said to to the woman. Did God really say those things? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this tree? Because on the day that you eat of it, you would, you would die? Did he really say that? Bringing doubt to her about God and his word? Telling her then, you know, you're not going to die and, and, and giving her even more doubts to the extent that the reason why he doesn't want you to eat of that fruit is because you'll be just like him. That was the pride of the enemy. That is the, that is the, very, the, the very root of all sin. Pride. Pride is the abominable thing that God hates. As indicated by Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, these six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are, the abom are an abomination unto him. The worst sort of thing. A proud look, it begins. A proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. In our Western mindset, you know, usually when we say six things God hates, but the seventh is an abomination, we kind of, be, we kind of go down to the end of the list and say, that must be the abomination. But in this mindset, in the Eastern mindset, and in the Hebrew mindset, the fact of the matter is when he says a seventh thing is an abomination, he begins with it by saying a proud look. Because pride is the root of all sin. And the Lord has laid on him, it goes on to say in Isaiah 53, verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the suffering servant of Israel, not Israel itself, but the suffering servant of Israel, the Mashiach of Israel. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here in our text, we consider the grace of God to one sinner. And that same grace is extended to all sinners who will benefit and take advantage themselves of that great and wonderful grace. I realize that this was the only way to begin an understanding of this passage of Scripture in John by realizing where we are right now. By realizing who we are, even as saints, even as people who have been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the words are quite adequate.
sinners saved by grace. So with this foundation, let's look carefully at our text. Verse 53 of seven, chapter 7. Every man went into his own house, but Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. After the events of the feast and the climactic declaration that Jesus made, his critics and his detractors finally broke up their little hate fest, and they went to their own houses while Jesus, the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, went to the Mount of Olives, possibly to Gethsemane, where he spent much time in prayer. And perhaps he went there to pray, realizing the events that were to come the following day, the events that we're looking at today. Gethsemane, quite an appropriate place. Gethsemane, the place of the olive press, the olive press that would roll over the olives to extract the oil from it. It's quite a picture of Jesus on the cross, pressed as he was in Gethsemane, pressed as he was on the cross because of our sins. Then early in the morning, verse 2, he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them. Jesus didn't scare off easily. You couldn't scare Jesus off. In fact, he was never scared off at all. But he was always concerned about timing. And you know, timing is, is everything in, 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 in scriptures, especially in the life of Jesus. And he knew that if he had left at a certain time to get down to the feast in Jerusalem, there were those who were already waiting to take him in, but it wasn't time. And he said, it isn't my time yet. But he still came. And not only did he come, but he came and went straight to the temple and he began to teach. And so he was never scared off at all. So we never think that. and We shouldn't think that. So at the break of day here, Jesus was now back at his father's house. And it was customary for teachers in that day to go to the outer courts of the temple by one of the pillars of the temple. And it would be there that their disciples would gather to hear their teachers or their rabbis. And there were a number of pillars. And so at every pillar, practically, there were teachers that were teaching to their disciples, as it were, or their students. And as Jesus was unfolding the truth of the word of God, there came a disturbance. Verse 3 says, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. That's a very interesting thing, the word taken there. Some of uh, your translations may say a woman caught in adultery. But the word itself, when you dig deeper into its, its, its understanding, would almost give the sense that uh, this was something that was set up. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? So far now John has told us of the time, the day after the ending of the feast, the temple, he told us where this was taking place. And he tells us of the teacher who is Jesus. But now he points out the trap Subtle as it may have been, 
All of this was done to trap Jesus. A woman was hauled into the temple and brought to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees. More than likely dragged in, more than likely she was doing all she could not to be seen, in other words, not to have her face shown out of pure shame. She was brought to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees. Now, one of the criticisms I was mentioning earlier, criticisms given for this passage uh, uh, not being here, is that uh, John, to quote the critics, John never mentioned the scribes. Well, he does here. See, that's the thing. You can read on through the earlier part of of the Gospel of John, maybe later, and he doesn't mention scribes as much, but he does mention them here. And there's good reason why he mentions them, because we're, de- we're dealing with the, the fact that the scribes were, were a group of guys that came out of uh, the Levites, and, and were many were probably Pharisees, but nonetheless they were brought up to transcribe or to write out and to copy the Scriptures. And the Scriptures have become very uh, necessary for them to use against Jesus in their attempts to catch him at something that they can arrest him for. But he does say scribes here. So just because they say, well, he never mentioned scribes, well, he does here. <laughs> why, do, why does John have to mention the scribes more than once for this to be valid? So let's leave that and let's go on to ask the question, why did they drag this woman before Jesus? Notice verse 6 answers that question for us. This they said, tempting him, testing him, that they might have to accuse him. In other words, that they might have something, some kind of evidence, some kind of thing to say, we've got him now. We've got him trapped. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. Jesus gave them the big ignore. Now before we get to Jesus' writing, before we get to what it is that Jesus said, uh, was, was writing, because of course we don't know, but let's consider what they said to Jesus. Let's consider their words to Jesus. This woman was caught in adultery in the very act, but what sayest thou? Now, it is quite possible that the woman was first taken before the Sanhedrin. If, in fact, they were somehow to catch this in the very act. And this may have been the place where the idea to trap the Lord came about. But again, as I said earlier, that when you examine that word taken, it has some implications to the fact that this was a part of a greater setup. The religious leaders hauled this woman into the public areas of the temple court until they arrived before Jesus and stood the woman in front of him. And this public humiliation before the hostile eyes of the nation present or the nation present was, was meant to be excruciatingly painful for the woman. But a question does arise. Where was the man? Where was the man, the other guilty party? Because, you know, when you realize from the law, the law that deals with this particular sin indicts both parties, not just one. In fact, when you read the, the, the passage in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that I'll mention in just a moment, when you read these, it... it it does include. It cannot be separated. And it requires witnesses. The charge itself was already prejudicial and it was already grossly unfair since it does take two to commit adultery. And here is where the word from the title of this message comes into play. I've entitled this message, Complicity or Compassion. How many people were complicit in this accusation? Who was the other alleged perpetrator? Was he also complicit in this? 
Let's remember that these evil men were not interested in justice. They were only interested in setting a trap for Jesus, even at the expense of the character of, of, of one woman. That to a certain extent they, would, they could care less about. And this as well was evil complicity. The state of being involved with others in an illegal activity or wrongdoing. Now, while that is an assumption, it has merit. Those who had brought the woman before Jesus were ready to put a noose around not only her neck, but around Jesus' neck as well. And so they were bold enough, bold enough to quote scripture to Jesus. The passages from Leviticus and Deuteronomy which prescribe stoning as the usual method of carrying out an execution under Mosaic law. The Lord did not need to be reminded of the severity of the law. He was in fact the lawgiver. If you think about the finger of Jesus writing on the ground, just think that there was a finger that wrote the law on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai to be given to Moses to bring to the people. When you, when you think of the way they thought of Moses in those days, you'd think that Moses himself was the one that wrote with his finger on the stone. But it was the finger of God. And more importantly, the finger of the right hand of God, who is Jesus himself. The Lord didn't need to be reminded of the severity of the law. He knew their hearts. That's what was important here. He knew their hearts. They were not holy men of God standing up for righteousness. But they were evil men seeking to catch Jesus and what he would say in regards to this situation. They knew he had a heart of compassion towards people. And so their thinking is that if, they, if he let this woman go, he would break the law of Moses. Their interpretation of the law of Moses. He would break the law of Moses and the people would see him as a false prophet. If he said that she should be stoned to death, two things. One thing is that the common people would no longer want to follow him. But most importantly, if he said that she needed to be stoned to death, they would snitch on Jesus to the Romans. Why? Because the Romans took away the Jewish right for capital punishment. Why do you think that when they accused Jesus, they took him to Pontius Pilate? And then think about this. You have to ask a question, even though it might be a, an assumptive question, but. Nonetheless, consider this. When was the last stoning there during the time of Jesus? If these facts are in place, there weren't. Do we find now the complicity in all of this? Now here are a couple of questions for these supposed holy men of God. If they caught this woman in the act, why didn't they try to stop this? You know, it takes two or, more, or three witnesses, the Bible teaches in Deuteronomy 19. It takes two or three witnesses before you make an accusation toward anyone. That, 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 that requires a lot. Why didn't they try to stop that? You know, when Jesus teaches about how we are to deal with issues amongst ourselves, what, whatever, he, whatever he said really comes from the basis of the law, how we are to go to someone, how we are to work these things through properly. 
Instead, think about the scene that was created of someone being brought and thrown in front of Jesus in the temple, in the place where God is to be worshipped. And all because they all they wanted to do was trap Jesus. And as we said before, she obviously wasn't alone. So where was, where was the man? Was she entrapped as well? So now we wonder what Jesus stooped to write on the ground, obviously ignoring these, these men. And again, I can only say that we can assume, we can only assume. Was it uh, the name of the man? Was it the laws that he was being quoted by these men? I didn't share this last night, but and it won't be up here behind me, but it's, it's believed and quite possibly that Jesus may have just written while he was on his, you know, stooping down and writing on the ground, that he may, have, he may have written the words of Exodus 23, verse 1, where it says, Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. If all of those who brought this woman before Jesus were complicit in, 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 in wanting to catch Jesus this would awaken their consciences or their consciences consciences let me say it right and I say that because of what we're going to read in just a moment but we we don't really know what Jesus wrote but Jesus did say something and if you look at again at verses 7 through 9 he says so when so when they continued asking him in other words, he's on the ground and they're just, you know, they're just hounding him. You know, even though he's to some extent ignoring them, he's riding on the ground and they're just continuing hounding him. He lifted up himself and he said to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, wrote something else. And they which heard it and noticed being convicted by their own conscience convicted by their own conscience. Why? Because they knew the law. Or at least they knew the law to a certain extent that they would try to use it against Jesus. But their own conscience, they were convicted by their own conscience. They went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, which is, by the way, the, you know, the, the custom was you know, that the eldest or, or the, the, the witnesses, as it were, We're entitled to stone first. But beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, they went out one by one, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. First of all, in the Jewish law, those who witnessed a capital offense would be the ones who began the stoning. Now, this is significant. Because J. Allen Blair, who was a, a preacher of the gospel many, many years ago, had translated this verse from the Greek in this manner. He said, let he who is without the same sin cast the first stone. Let he who is without the same sin cast the first stone. And that was based upon not only what Jesus said here, but actually based upon looking very carefully at the laws concerning this in, in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus began to write on the ground again. And, and what he wrote again, we don't know. But what we do know, what we do know can be found, for example, in the book of Jeremiah. Because in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 13, listen to these words. Jeremiah 17, 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. 
I find this verse to be incredibly significant here. For what we see are people forsaking Jesus. They had no answer to his response. And they walk away. Convicted by their own consciences, they walk away. As he's writing on the ground. They depart from me. They that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Isn't that interesting? Because they have forsaken the Lord. The fountain of living waters. Now consider that verse. In light of the previous events in chapter 7 concerning the last day of the feast. John 7 verses 37 and 38 where Jesus said, and he stood, and remember he stood and he cried with a loud voice, which means he just yelled at the top of his lungs and he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. How significant. Who were they forsaking? And what was Jesus writing on the ground that caused them to leave, eldest to the youngest, until the only ones left were the woman and Jesus? The word wrote, when it talks about Jesus writing, the word wrote in the Greek is combined with another word to form the phrase katagraphane, which can be broken down to mean against and to write, or grammatically, to write against. Whatever was written was written against these men and what they did. Were they all complicit in the very sin they were accusing the woman of? Were they all complicit? Only the Lord knows. But for these men, Psalm 90 verse 8 would apply. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. And of course, that's said for all of us. What we do know is that their hearts were far from humility. Their hearts were far from being humble. Their motives, in fact, betrayed their own hypocrisies and their evil. J.N. Darby wrote this. He, concerning this passage, he said, It comforts and quiets the depraved heart of man if he can only find a person worse than himself. He thinks the greater sin of another excuses himself. And while accusing and vehemently blaming another, he forgets his own evil. He thus rejoices in iniquity. What a profound statement. He thus rejoices in iniquity. But we know that the Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the great love chapter that love does not rejoice in iniquity but it rejoices in the truth. And that was revealed when we bring the curtain back up for this last act. What do we find? Verses 10 and 11, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman. Now, now think of this. Remember Jesus had gathered, had a gathering around him, a 
people that were listening to him teach, and then they came and they brought this woman, they threw her before him. But now there's no one there. Uh, we're not going to try to conjecture what, what took place here at that time. But this had to have been a very powerful witness by Jesus himself so that by the time he gets up, as it says, he saw none but the woman. He said unto her, woman, where are, the, where are those thine accusers? I, I could just see Jesus kind of looking all around. You know. Where did everybody go? Where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And just remember this. It took two or more to condemn. Has no man condemned thee? And she said, no man, Lord. Now stop and think. If there's anything you're going to circle in your, past, in your Bible, not the church's Bible, but the, your Bible, is the word Lord. You circle that. You highlight it. You put arrows toward it. No man, Lord. What had they called him when they brought her? Brought her? Master. But was he really their master? I don't think so. In fact, I know that he wasn't their master. Another revealing of their heart. But when she says, no man, Lord, there would have had to have been two there. Jesus was one, but he wasn't accusing her. So notice what it says. No man, Lord, master. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, as I said, according to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, you need two witnesses to condemn a person. And now there's none. Jesus thus sets her free. This same woman who probably came in being dragged, kicking and screaming for her life. She's now at peace. No more condemnation because she has been touched by Jesus. Furthermore, she has called him Lord. She put herself, listen, by just calling him Lord, she put herself under his authority. And the reality now is clear. The law, as good and as wonderful and as perfect as it is, the law nonetheless condemns her to death. Just as the law has condemned us all to death. For it only requires one sin to be condemned. The law condemned her to death, but Jesus offered her hope when hope was dead. These people that brought this woman before the Lord were the ones who were trying to kill hope. Jesus gave her hope. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Interestingly enough, if you go back to chapter 5, after the layman was healed, there was a quick meeting with the layman and Jesus, and Jesus actually said to him, go and sin no more. So we know that the two situations were totally different, yet he said the same thing. Go, sin no more. But please understand, here it is significant because Jesus is saying, in effect, he doesn't condone sin. This is not a condoning of sin, but what he does, in fact, here, is conquer sin. And that's what Jesus came to do. He doesn't condone sin, but he conquers sin. 
You do thank the Lord for that, right? Because he does conquer our sins. And by the way, that's why he came, because we went to that cross. And what did he do? He died on the cross and shed his blood to conquer sin and death for us, because we can't do it ourselves. No matter what we do, we can't do it ourselves. And so with a new life and a new Lord, she went on her way. And again, we could only assume that because of what had happened, she may have just began, she may have just begun to follow the Lord. That would have probably been the best thing for her. Follow the Lord with other believers. But may I bring this time to a close by just sharing with you some very powerful scriptures that should remind us always of what Jesus Christ came to do on our behalf. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation. Isn't that something to rejoice in today? No condemnation. We still struggle with sin. We still wrestle the, you know, the temptations of this world. But you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we don't lose that. Because we've gained something. We've gained a relationship with God the Father. Jump down to chapter 10, Romans 10, verses 9 and uh, 9 through 11. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, what does this woman say? Lord. She confessed him as Lord. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But notice verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Have you with your mouth confessed Jesus Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that he's risen from the dead? And then notice verse 11, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Who became ashamed that day? Well, you start with a woman when she was brought the way she was. There was a lot of shame in that. But who walked out ashamed then? But those who had come to accuse who walked out free then? The one that Jesus said, go and sin no more. I don't accuse you. May I leave you with John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world. Have we forgotten that? We have to be careful not to put ourselves on any kinds of pedestals. What humbles us as believers in Jesus Christ is what God has done because he loved us with an everlasting love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but to the world through him might be saved. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. If we have to ask ourselves any questions today, we can ask ourselves, are we complicit? Or are we compassionate? Jesus taught us compassion.
not to overstate the law or the breaking of the law, but to encourage our hearts that even if we fall, He's there to lift us up. And in that, we can rejoice, each and every one of us here. That's how much God loves you. Amen? Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity once again to come before your throne of grace and to realize, Lord, how precious your love truly is. How we ask you, Lord, to help us to understand these things, Lord, more than just for a moment, but for all time. And to know, Lord, that you're working a work in us. And though you have not completed it, you're working toward that completion. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege that you've given us, Lord, to have been brought to you And to trust, Lord, that what you have done for this woman, you have done for us. You've come not to accuse and not to condemn, but to save. And so in this day of grace, as we look for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I pray for those who really today just need to be encouraged by that grace and by that mercy. We bless you for it, we thank you for it, and we ask, Lord God, that you would encourage our hearts to go and to do those things that which will honor and bless you until Jesus comes again. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.